are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Monday, everybody. A new week. We appreciate you joining us on your Monday afternoon. Lance, it's your first Monday in two weeks that you've had to be at work. I hope I'm continuing to pull you onto the side that Monday's off are better than Friday's off. Yeah, after having back-to-back weeks off on Monday, I'm I'm kind of on your side now. I'm kind of on your side. Of course, this Monday, you know... Uh, it's normally Mondays are usually like rainy and and just like they just drag along and today it has been a little rainy outside but I'm excited because we are counting down to the days until SEC media days which starts next Monday and I could not be more excited we're a week out from that you and I got our credentials on Friday and we'll be headed out there broadcasting all week long at Radio Row so stay tuned for that and all of the great stuff happening here on ESPN 106.7 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. Us and The Drive will be broadcasting. We'll be there for all four days, and then The Drive will be there for Wednesday and Thursday. So looking forward to a fun and information-packed week next week and truly the beginning of the college football season in the Southeastern Conference. Looking forward to that coming up on Monday through Thursday as well. And that first day, man, it's a star-studded group. You've got LSU and Florida right out the gates. Yeah, it should be really exciting. I'm interested to see uh, what Ogeron has to say about his two coordinators. It's definitely something I will be looking into. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564-1840. Find us on Twitter, at Point Gardner, at Doll Pound. A lot to talk about today. An Auburn linebacker target this afternoon to be making his decision at 3 p.m. via Twitter. That is Micah Pollard. 24-7 Sports had an article about that by Keith Niebuhr. You can go and check that article out and get some information on Micah Pollard making his decision today at 3 p.m. via Twitter. We're going to try and keep you up to date on what's going on with that at around that time. We'll preview his decision and what's possibly at play there for Pollard. We'll talk about that coming up at about 2.50 and then at 3 o'clock Around that time, we'll try and keep an eye on Twitter to see where his decision leads him. So we'll get to that later on in the show. But I want to open up today's show with a topic that I wanted to talk about on Friday, but it was so jam-packed with information, we had to boot it to today, and it's a great way to start the week off. Of course, Demetrius Robertson last week, it seems like he's been a part of the team for forever now, Lance, but Demetrius Robertson committed last week, and I think it's pertinent now to rank Auburn's top five wide receivers the main five guys that we think are going to be catching passes from Bo Nix this year or TJ Finley. I said that with a sly Bruh. grin. <laughs> boo! <laughs> Everybody out there saying boo this man, right? But rank Auburn's top five wide receivers now that Demetrius Robertson has entered the room. Okay, so should we start out at five and work our way up or should we start with the top? Let's start at five. All right, at number five, I have Zevion Capers. The reason I have Zevion at five and not higher than that is because I truly believe that there are other guys that are going to be targeted more than Capers is this season. I mean, it's not a knock on his talent. It's not a knock on his potential. 
I just think that there are other guys in this room that I've heard more about and I'm more excited about. So he's sitting there at number five. Who knows? He could be sitting at number three, number two, uh, come into the season. But I think five is a good place to put him. Capers is at five on my list as well. And a big part of this has to do with the fact that he spent the the spring hurt. He was not able to get in front of this new coaching staff. He was not able to show what he could do compared to some of these other receivers. An injury this offseason may have sent him down the depth chart significantly where if this was Gus Malzahn coaching this team, he's the top three receiver and the way that Gus Malzahn utilized his receivers and had his route tree set up he would be a starter and would be on the field almost every play but it's a new coaching staff it's a different philosophy it's a different scheme it's a different way to utilize receivers and considering he didn't get to play throughout the spring I have to believe that considering players such as Javarius Johnson Elijah Canyon and Demetrius Robertson all entering the conversation all really shooting up the depth chart it seems this coaching staff ooze and ahs over Javarius Johnson talks about him a lot they seem to really like him Cornelius Williams seems to adore him Elijah Canyon the last two times we have seen him on the field for Auburn in a football game he has been the best receiver and the most productive receiver on the field and then Demetrius Robertson is probably the most decorated he's not probably he is the most decorated of all of these receivers right so three receivers have entered into the conversation that's enough for me to think that Capers has dropped on this depth chart and to put him at fifth on this list I think it's very fair I think it's very fair I've also I've just heard just a lot of exciting things about these other four players individually go on to number four at number four is a guy I've heard a lot about recently Javaris Johnson I uh, I wrote an article for the Auburn Wire uh, you can go check that out auburnwireusatoday.com uh, but explaining how Javaris could potentially be Auburn's breakout star on offense this season because there, there are quite a few people talking about him. And Jay, Jake Crane uh, of the J-Boy Show uh, came on recently to uh, to Locked on Auburn, the podcast that our, our good friend here at the station, Zach Blackerby, hosts. And they were talking about Johnson. And from what Jake has heard, there are people around the program that say this guy looks like Jalen Waddle once he gets in space. I mean, he is just electric in the open field, and they feel like he feels like that he's going to be able to get the ball in a few different ways. He thinks that he's going to be an incredibly special playmaker this season. And then when you bring in a guy like Gropperson to spell him in the slot, it's going to give him opportunities to to get open and to catch some balls in open space. So. I'm excited about it, man. I, I believe the hype. I'll buy into it. I that put him is at major praise to compare an individual to a top seven, top six draft pick in this previous NFL draft. Jalen Waddle was special. Now I like Javarius Johnson too, but I, I'm just saying Jalen Waddle was special. He said that he believes that he'll be after hearing things around the program. Dude's going to be able to hit the home run ball consistently. If he gets in space, he could be gone. What scares me? I like the optimism, but what scares me? I've heard these things so often about this is going to be a new explosive offense. This guy's really showing out. Then nothing ever ever actually happens or it doesn't seem like they reach that full potential. I got to see this happen on the field first because I think that there are other more explosive options in space on this top five list maybe than Javarius Johnson. But I agree. For all with you. I know, he, he could end up being that way. I agree with you, and that's why I have him at four because I believe he's got he's got upside. Now, Jalen Waddle upside, don't know about that, but I believe he's got upside, and I believe Bonix is going to be able to target him a little bit, especially with a guy like Robertson in the slot on the other side of the field. Because if you're targeting Auburn, what what could be Auburn's best receiver, it's going to leave other guys open. So I'm interested to see what happens there. That's why I have Johnson at four. 
Auburn fans have not seen a receiver with Jalen Waddle like upside. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we've I, we we've not seen one not seen one in my lifetime. At least I don't believe as far as like speed goes. I don't know if I can name and, a receiver that I would put in that ballpark. Not saying that, and by ballpark I mean style of play. I think Auburn's had some dominant receivers over the years from a more physical standpoint, not necessarily speed and shiftiness from a route running perspective, but. Duke Williams was really good. Seth Williams had the potential to make incredible plays with his hands, jump out of a gym, you know, types of plays, mossing receivers. Sammy Coates was really fun to watch when he was here at Auburn. They've had some standout wide receivers, but nobody that really like fits that Jalen Waddle mold that comes to mind. Yeah, no, and and I and I said in, in terms of speed, but like you look at a guy like Schwartz, he he was not a polished route runner, and I think part of that had to do with Auburn's scheme. But he was the guy that you would literally just send on a go and see what happens. But he was not in terms of like just being a polished receiver and getting open in space and running routes like Waddle did. He was not that guy. Four on my list is Javarius Johnson as well. This coaching staff raves raves about Johnson other media personalities do as well he has been the hot topic of the receiver room throughout the summer and in the spring prior to Demetrius Robertson stepping on campus but he was the spring darling if you will I hope it wasn't a spring fling I hope it wasn't just spring fever and people latching on to a storyline or a narrative of a player I hope this does actually materialize when the football season rolls around but he's a versatile threat that can be used underneath and in the intermediate passing game. He's still a mystery, considering we haven't seen him a whole lot. We really only got limited action from him in the spring game, but this coaching staff seems to love him. And if there's a player that in the underneath game resembles how the previous coaching staff used Eli Stove, that would be Javarius Johnson. That's yeah. what I see at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if Johnson is is as good of a route runner as Stove was, but you know that's yet to yet to be determined. Because again, it's really hard. It's really hard with this receiver room, man. Because every single time you're like, well, I think this guy could do this. I was like, well, is he really going to do that? Because we've not seen him do that yet. So with Johnson, he looks like the type of guy that would that would that would play that type of role. I'm interested to see what he does. Like you said, I think he's very versatile, and I think this coaching staff's going to be able to use him in a lot of different ways. Into the top three, you and I are deciding. It really have flip flopped here. I've seen your list, you've seen mine. You and I have flip flopped here on two and three. So let's break open the discussion: Elijah Canyon versus Kobe Hudson. Right, right. So I have Canyon at number three. The reason I have Canyon at number three is just simply I believe Kobe's going to be targeted more. I think Canyon, you saw in the spring game and you saw in the Outback Bowl that he was the guy and that Knicks was going to him, but I feel like that there are other targets on this roster that are going to be able to get the ball more. Now, what he possesses, based on what we saw in the bowl game, is that home run ball ability. He can stretch the field just a little bit, and I'm excited to see that, but I think Hudson is going to be be able to get a little bit more involved in the offense and at the end of the day I think he has more receptions and more yards simply statistically I think you look at the end of the day and and say that Hudson's probably going to come out just with a slight edge there now could Canyon become Auburn's number two receiver sure I'm not saying it's not going to happen I he could be incredibly productive for Auburn he could be Nix's bailout guy I'm just saying I've, I've seen a lot from Kobe Hudson. I've seen a lot from, from a guy that, that's above uh, Hudson. Obviously, we're going to talk about Robertson in a little bit. I, I just believe that targets, target-wise, uh, Canyon's not going to be able to get as much as Hudson. Not saying you're wrong. That opinion, very valid. I'm with you. I think Kobe Hudson's going to be targeted a lot in this offense. 
I'm not ready to say that he will be the most targeted player in this offense. I thought that that would have been the case going into spring before we even saw A-Day. And then I saw A-Day and I said, oh, that may not be the case because Canyon wasn't just a burn you down deep kind of guy. And we have to look at this receiver room differently now than the way we looked at it under Malzahn. These guys don't have a couple of routes assigned to each of them and then that's all that they run. And if you go back and you watch the A-Day game, Elijah Canyon was targeted a lot in the intermediate. And you look at his touchdown pass, that was like an in route in the end zone. And it was a well-thrown ball as well by Bo Nix. And a great catch as well through traffic. He ran a couple of comeback routes to the sideline. He wasn't just burning you down deep. And I go back and I look at the statistics, and there has been this narrative about Kobe Hudson that, man, it's, it's this year. This guy's going to show up. He's a natural wide receiver. He's going to look good this season. But I look at his stats last year, and Elijah Canyon in one bowl game almost had more catches than Kobe Hudson across the entire season. He had three catches in the bowl game for 80 yards. Kobe Hudson had seven catches for 70 yards last year. And Elijah Canyon obviously had the touchdown in the bowl game. Very small sample size for these two guys, but I haven't seen it yet from Kobe Hudson. Only seven for 70 is not, not enough for me to just like say, oh, this guy's going to this guy's going to blow up this year winning right. the A-Day game. The the only two times we've ever seen Elijah Canyon, the only two times we've ever seen him, he's been the dude. Right. That's been the receiver. And I've had a hard time finding flaws with Elijah Canyon up to this point. Now, granted, we haven't seen him enough, so maybe that's not on film yet. And I'm sure there are flaws, of course. It's an Auburn receiver room. All of these receivers are going to have flaws, right? But Kobe Hudson is very much so there's a little bit more of his underwhelming side on film maybe than, than Elijah Canyon at the moment. Right, right. My thing, though, is with, with Kobe Hudson, he was able to get those reps during the season when Auburn had Seth Williams, Schwartz, and Stove out there yeah. starting, like those senior receivers out there. He was able to get that little bit of production. Previous and, coaching staff trusted him. And Canyon didn't get that production until either those guys were injured or it was the end of the season and nothing mattered. So my question is, after seeing A-Day, were they hiding Hudson like they were trying to hide Javaris Johnson are they trying to keep some of these guys on the wraps are they trying to hide what's going on in the tight end room because again that's what a day is not for showing everything you got a days being vanilla and just just running as basic as possible so I'm, I'm not saying that Canyon isn't or is isn't going to be that guy but I think a day is not a good measurement for what these guys could potentially become because Auburn's not obviously going to go to the best of their best in a, in, a, in a spring scrimmage. That being said, I think both these guys are fantastic. I think they're both going to get their own. I, 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 like you said earlier, I think it's kind of a flip-flop, but I've got, I've got Hudson, Hudson just slightly above Canyon. So you say that, though, but Bo Nix played three quarters in the scrimmage. Much, much more time in a scrimmage than Malzahn would have had a starter in, right? I mean, Bo Nix would have been gone by that point he would have played a half and maybe you've seen a, a drive in the second half but would have not have played I'm putting a little bit more emphasis on this spring game than maybe the future now scheme wise bland it was horrible I hated it this was one of the most underwhelming 8A games that I've seen in recent memory because it was boring just scheme wise majority of the time they were throwing screens it was not it was not desirable you're right they were holding back from a play calling perspective but I think this coaching staff was wanting to see things out of their players that they had never seen before. This was the first time, aside from film, which everybody's got film, but in person, own eyes, 
first time that any of these coaches, other than Mike Bobo, got to see these guys in a live setting. So I do think that there is something to take away from their A-Day performance because this coaching staff did leave Bo Nix out there for quite some time and obviously was wanting to see something from these dudes to kind of begin to make his pecking order. I think that's fair. At the same time, I don't know how much stock I put it, it put into the to A-Day. It's A-Day. You're 100% correct. It's what A-Day. I, what I do put stock into is what Canyon did in that bowl game. And yeah. I know that those guys were out, and I know it didn't matter, but he still got those reps. I'm not saying that Canyon's not good. I'm not saying that he's not going to be a factor in this offense. It's just I think he and Hudson are on the same playing level, yeah. playing field. I could see Canyon being Bo Nix's guy a little bit easier than – Kobe Hudson being Bo Nix's guy because of the relationship I think that we already saw in that spring game but you're right it was A-Day and when have we ever put stock into A-Day and if you are you probably should back off that ledge a little bit because this year would be a horrible year if you were watching A-Day and you thought it was going to be better than that but yeah I mean I still I think we have to throw everything that the previous coaching staff did out of the window almost I think with Bo Nix and some other players where we've seen a large enough sample size, there are certain positions. I don't think you could throw everything out the window, but I do think that there is a lot that you can throw out the window. Receivers is one thing that you can throw out, at least the way that they were used. Anything that had had anything to do with scheme last year or this previous regime, forget about it because it's going to be completely different. Now, Bo Nix's play is independent of that to a degree. It's linked to it, but also independent of that. Like, we have two years' worth of film on Bo Nix, so we know what he's good at and what he's bad at. Same as Tate Bigsby, you have a year on him now. You know what he's good at, you know what he's bad at. But the way in which that the individual positions were used in play calling and whatnot, that's all out the window. Yep. I got a question for you, but I'm I'm going to save it uh, for the for the next segment, and then we'll we'll obviously talk about both of our number one receivers, Demetrius Robertson. But I've got an interesting question for you. Go for it. You you don't want to wait until break? How much time we got? Let's see. Is this going to take me a long time to answer? Should we wait till break? Yeah, let's wait till break. All right, Lance is going to ask me a mystery question. I open that box when we come back. You're listening on the line. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central, Alabama. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text line, 334-564-1840. Ranking our top five Auburn receivers now that Demetrius Robertson has entered the room. Lance has a question for me. And if you want to answer that question as well, once again, call in 334-321-1390. Text box 334-564-1840. Lance, what do you have to ask me? So, whenever you look at these five receivers, right, if you had to add tight ends to this list, if we were doing this in terms of production, let's say say pass catching ability, just talent, and then production, would you have a tight end in your top five? I didn't rank this list off of production. I ranked this list off of A, wide receivers, and B, based off of their ability as wide receivers. So I'll tackle that two parts. Production, I would have to. You look at other teams, production, the tight end will probably get 20. The, the lead tight end will probably get at least 20 catches this year. Last year, the entire room had 20 catches for 178 yards. So off of production, I would have to say, Yes, Auburn will probably have a tight end this year. Not probably. It's it's. I I feel very comfortable in saying that Auburn will have a tight end that in production is a top five receiver for them. 
I would say that in terms of production. But in terms of ability, I do not think that Auburn has a tight end on this roster that is better than any of these five guys catching passes. Which is fair. That's fair. But at the same time, you you don't trust Schenker or Frazier or Deal or Fromm to get involved and, and, and make plays? I do. I, I just said in production, I think that they get inside the top five. But you don't think any of these guys are talented enough to do what these other five receivers do? I would much rather have a wide receiver any day of the week catching passes than a tight end just because there's more that they can do with the football after they catch said football and so for me receivers and this I think this is an obvious answer receivers are better at catching the football than tight ends and that's just has to do with natural frame route running hands all of that receivers are better at that I understand the question production wise yes I'll say that I'm there with you production wise a tight end will be in the top five pass catchers for Auburn this year I believe that. I think that they use the tight end position a lot more this year. Normal teams have a tight end be at least in their top five. Some teams even have a running back there, right? Like it, it happens. Auburn has been an abnormal case over the last couple of years with the way in which that they've used tight ends. An abnormal case. I won't say putrid, but abnormal case with the way in which they use tight ends. But in terms of ability, which is how I ranked my list, I would not put a tight end on this list. I don't think Auburn's got one yet in the room where I'm like, yeah, they're a better receiver. Once again, I'm saying receiver than Xavion Capers. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. At the same time, I do, I do, I'm really excited about this tight end room. And looking at 2022, you bring in a guy like Michael Riley Ducker, and that's what he's going to be brought on to do. I'm, I'm excited to see that. I was just, that was just going to be my point. Is I'm excited to see what this tight end position does now. And I'm not saying that they're obviously, like you said, obvious statement. Receivers are going to catch the football better than tight ends. They're literally called receivers for a reason. But at the same time, I'm just excited to do see what these guys do, man. Like I think Auburn's got, I think Auburn has talent on roster. Has Malzahn ruined it all? I don't think completely. And then I think Auburn's also going to be able to bring in talent, i.e., Riley Ducker, Michael Riley Ducker. So I'm just excited. I'm excited to see what this this corpse does as a whole from from wide receivers to tight ends. The biggest concern for me about the tight end room is does someone emerge as the lead candidate you didn't have John Samuel Shanker in the spring because he's playing baseball which is fine and this coaching staff talked very highly of him throughout the spring you can't put him in the same category as the other tight ends at the moment because he wasn't there so we didn't get to see what he looked like in the spring versus the other ones and granted you watch the A-Day game and you see Auburn's tight ends route running underwhelming they didn't look great as far as hands the tight ends just I was underwhelmed with how the tight ends looked in the A-Day game and nobody really showed up in a way where I was like yeah that guy's the dude nobody took over the room you understand some received more targets than the others but nobody just showed up as the dude in the room and sure it's still early it's spring nobody's going to do that in the spring but I just posed a question saying will that even occur right is this John Samuel Shanker's room I would say yes at the moment but is that does he have enough hold on the room to where he's the guy on the field all the time tight end if if there's a tight end on the field at texas a&m it's jalen weidermeyer if there's going to be a tight end on the field at alabama next year it's it's jaleel billingsley if there's a tight end on the field at georgia next year it's going to be darnell washington or eric gilbert wherever he's playing i know they're they're looking at him more as a wide receiver now but the other teams have dudes in this league and that is the tight end that is on the field 90 percent of the time at auburn right now i'm not so sure if they know who that is at this moment and if they will know who that is by the time the season starts 
I think that's fair to say. So, so in in summary, talent wise, none of these guys are going to jump off the page from in terms of like the tight end position, in terms of like catching the ball, and then also your concern is that Harson may go tight end by committee, and none of these guys may Correct. stand out. I see more of a tight end by committee at the moment. Everybody tells me how talented these guys were in high school and great pass catchers they were, and I'm with it. Yes, they do have that resume. I'm with that. And I think Auburn uses the tight end position more, and I do think there's talent there. But also, likewise, people have to admit, we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it yet. Now, I did say in our first segment that you have to throw anything linked to the scheme and the previous coaching staff in that way. You have to throw it out the window because they're not here anymore. But I still think it's okay to be cautious and reserved in the way that you're projecting this tight end room, considering we really didn't get enough of a look of it in the spring. And I'm not sure if we even know who the starter is at tight end at the moment. I mean, do you know who that is? I mean, in my mind, I think it would. I think it, I think it would be Shanker. But at the same time, he didn't play uh, in the spring. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and was there really a dude? Once again, I go back to that. Was there really a guy, a leader after a day? No. I think the answer to that question is no. I don't think anybody really took it over during the spring. And so there's talent there. There is high school resumes there. A lot of stars in that tight end room. I'm talking about recruiting rankings there. There's a lot there. But is it actually going to materialize? And that's where I'm more cautious about. There's there's still a lot of growing pains. We got a text on our text box. Uh, Somebody said, uh, and they they didn't give a name or anything. They just texted and said, Kobe is Canyon's dad. Appreciate that. Appreciate that text. That's... that's that's hilarious but 334-564-1840 is the text box that's how you can text us yeah if you want to if you want to give your thoughts on who do you think is better kobe hudson or elijah canyon i'd love to hear your thoughts do you want to do you want to talk about robertson for a second here as our number one receiver we're actually about to have to go to break ah we're like 20 seconds away from break so i would but we will touch on that when we come back from break demetrius robertson the number one wide receiver on both of our list. We'll tell you about all the exciting things that we expect Demetrius Robertson to do in this Auburn offense. I asked you the question a while back if this moves the needle for Auburn's receiver room. I think it very much so does. I think it does. It gives it gives Bo Nick somebody that has experience, experience and has production in college football uh, to, to, to look at. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we break down Demetrius Robertson in more detail why we think this is a major move for Auburn football. Only 30 minutes through hour number one. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay on the line. More of the show when we come back. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text box at 334-564-1840. That's how you get in contact with On the Line. 30 minutes into hour number one, we've been ranking Auburn's top five wide receivers now that Demetrius Robertson has entered the room. Our top five, very similar. Five through two, only flipped on how we view Elijah Canyon and Kobe Hudson at five. I have Xavier Capers as well as you do. Four, Javarius Johnson, also the same, but this is where we flipped here. Two and three. At three, I have Kobe Hudson. At three, you have Canyon. At two, I have Canyon. At two, you have Hudson. And now we're to the top. That means we both have Demetrius Robertson, the most polished of all the Auburn wide receivers. 
now that he has transferred to Auburn at the top. I mean, it's really hard to not put a former five-star wide receiver number one overall in the entire country that has four or five years of college experience under his belt. It's, it's hard to not put that guy as your number one whenever he's transferring into a receiver room that just doesn't have a lot of production. And he's he's been able he's been able to do some incredible things, specifically in his freshman year at Cal in 2016. He's been kind of hampered by injuries throughout his career, but I'm really excited to see what he brings to Auburn. Something that you pointed out as far as far as his you know his targets. I believe you were looking at some of his pro football focus numbers. Is that he's been used in a lot of different ways, and he's got blazing speed. And he's not a short guy. He's not a really big guy. He's just an overall versatile, really talented wide receiver. So Auburn can be able to Auburn can use this guy in a ton of different ways, and I think Bo Nix is going to absolutely love him. So in terms of talent, in terms of targets, in terms of yards, I think this guy is going to lead Auburn in most of those categories, if not all, at the end of the season. When he first committed, I tried to play it cool, continue to do research, continue to find out more about Demetrius Robertson before I really went off the rails but I do think that this changes Auburn's receiver room dramatically this is no small get for Auburn football he significantly improves Auburn's receiver room where you may not have had a lot of confidence without him I think you can have confidence going into the regular season now there's enough talent in here there's enough talent in this receiver room to be a top seven top six receiver room in the SEC which some folks out there may be saying oh that's too low that's still in the middle of the pack well look most preview magazines most analysts out there do not view this receiver room highly they view it in that bottom four bottom three territory mainly because of no production but there's talent here to be a top half you know a b to uh yeah you know a b to a b plus receiver room in the sec if i had to give it a grade if they can pick things up quickly and demetrius yep. robertson gives them the ability and the much needed ability in this room to pick things up quickly because he's polished this guy's been in two programs one of which that predicates itself on throwing the football I mean Sonny Dykes used to be their head coach all they would do is throw the football I mean it was the air raid without calling it the air raid and then you move out of Cal and you go to Georgia which is going to be a program that is much better at developing their players than Cal I buy this guy's development as a wide receiver up to this point, even though he's been a bit of a journeyman and hasn't been able to get onto the field that much. There's been some good receivers to come through the door at both of those locations. So I buy his his locations, his, his resume up to this point, and that this guy is going to be the most polished of all Auburn receivers. He better be. This is his sixth year in college. Yeah. He better know something about playing the receiver position now that he's in his sixth year at the collegiate level. I, I imagine he has a lot more knowledge than any of these other receivers which is going to equip him better than the others to make an impact right away he provides a lot of utility as you pointed out his usage in terms of the numbers that we saw in pro football focus 90 percent of the time at cal he was split out as a wide receiver as a wideout. 90 percent of the time at georgia he was a wide receiver in the slot so you talk about he's either inside or outside he's done it both and he's done it both at a consistent basis whether it was at Georgia or it was at Cal slot or wide out I think he can do both for Auburn the big game changer here is he gives Auburn an extreme amount of speed without sacrificing size six foot 190 pounds this guy is not Anthony Schwartz he's a normal wide receiver a normal average build for a wide receiver but he's extremely fast he's shifty 
you can have this man line up anywhere on the field to try and get you a mismatch with whatever corner you want unless they stick their fastest cornerback on this man and follow him around the field in man-to-man which still may not be enough because your fastest cornerback may not necessarily be your best man-to-man cornerback right not everybody's got that luxury like Auburn does with Roger McCreary and Treshawn Miller and all of these other talented corners not everybody has that few teams in this league have the ability to just say hey you're gonna follow this guy all game long yep yep he's going to be able to create mismatches against 85 90 percent of Auburn's schedule that's exciting for me yep uh, I think he's going to be something really really special for all the reasons that we listed oh oh uh, funny question for you what number do you think he's going to wear because he wore eight at Cal and then he wore 16 at Georgia and I believe Malcolm Johnson Jr. is wearing 16 for Auburn you think he switches back to eight no he can't because Sean Shivers is wearing eight so what 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 number do you think he's gonna wear I gotta see what receivers numbers are covered at the moment let's see 11's taken by Shedrick Jackson six is Javarius Johnson 16 Malcolm Johnson five is Kobe Hudson 80's Xavion Capers is anybody wearing 88? I'd really like to see a receiver wear 88. Is, it, is there a tight end wearing 88? I don't think so. Dylan? Uh, 88 is uh, retired? retired. Yeah, I was, I was going to say I thought it was retired oh. by Beasley. Terry Beasley. How did I, how did I drop that? How, how, how did I forget that? Not a real Auburn fan. Don't, don't come at me don't, with don't that. Say it, don't say that. <laughs> Stay over there, intern Star Wars. <laughs> Mic off. Mute. This man just came at me with that. Sorry. Mental... 88 is one of my favorite receiver numbers, and I just had a mental that's, lapse that that it cannot be worn at Auburn. That's where my mind went, and then I, and then I was I couldn't remember whether or not Beasley's number had been retired. So it's 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 fine. It's fine. Anybody wearing eighty six? Uh, Luke Deal is. Deal is. Darn. And then Frazier's wearing eighty seven. What's no? What number is this man gonna wear? <laughs> I don't like eighty five for receivers. That's like a tight end number almost dylan because you told him not to speak just turned to me and and, and threw up a zero uh do you think he w- he could potentially be wearing number zero for the Tigers? if you were going to wear zero as an offensive player i think zero works on defense you don't have to be anything out of the ordinary to wear zero on defense but if you are going to wear zero on offense you better be a stud you better be you, good you better do that thing yep yep i've uh, I'm, same as wearing number one i don't if you're know wear number one you better be a dude i don't know if i've said this on air i don't like the way that number zero looks on football jerseys i think it's fine for basketball i think double zero is fine for basketball I think it def- depends on the font a lot of times yeah it's just sometimes with the font just makes it look really really weird and 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 i know it may be because college games never had it that's why it looks weird i just don't like it um if anything two two isn't that retired by Cam? What is wrong with me? <laughs> what is wrong with me? Oh, man. But uh, if, if I'm going to put zero on a college football player, I'd put it on, on a defensive player. I think it looks weird on, on a receiver. And then you've got Anaya Smith at Texas A&M, who is kind of that running back uh, receiver hybrid and I think the number looks, I think the number looks okay on him, but still, I really don't like zero. And then you have like uh, UTSA's quarterback last year, Frank Harris. He wore zero, and so see a quarterback wear zero is just, it's it's weird to me. I don't like it. I don't like it. So let's see. Three is open. Three is open, and he could wear three. That would be that would be fun. That'd be fun. When's the last time? Uh, I na- think that would be really good. I want to see him wear three. Is that the first three since? No, that's DJ Williams. First three since DJ Williams. I think three would be a great number. I think he wears. I think. I think he. he it's either three or zero. I think he didn't his. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. 
You got to be elite if you're going to wear zero. Okay, yeah, I actually, I just got a text. Somebody sent me his commitment graphic, and he's wearing number zero in the graphic. So, But does that mean he's going to wear zero? Eh, it might. It might, might be a pretty good indication. I, I like I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's guaranteed, but I mean, I think it's to, I, I think it's yeah three or zero three or zero is what I'll say. Well, if you want to text into the show three three four five six four one eight four zero number to call three three four three two one thirteen ninety. What number would you like to see Mister Demetrius Robertson wear at Auburn? And then something else I was going to say earlier. You were talking about whether or not this receiver room as a whole is able to pick it up because you believe that this is going to be a top top half unit in the SEC somewhere around there. Phil Steele, thank goodness we've got his college football magazine has them at eleven, which is surprising to me. And so my question is: is how quickly is this receiver room going to be able to pick it up? Because you look at those two first games. F- before Penn State and we both believe I think that that's going to be a Tank Bigsby flex game we believe that the that the ground game is going to control that one of course Auburn's offense is going to click but how quickly is it going to take these receivers to actually get into rhythm because you get those two cupcake games and then you have to go on the road in a really tough environment Penn State will will they be ready at that point their secondary is not the darling of the country either yeah I I wouldn't say it's very good but I whenever in terms of like what Auburn's going to focus on I think they're going to run the football quite a bit Sure. Almer's offense is going to be predicated on running the football, so it might take a little bit, but if you are down on something at Auburn right now, offensive line, receiver, I get it. Last year's track record, not a great indicator, but I fully expect it to be much improved this season. Believe it or not, you talk about Phil still being down on the Auburn receivers, which everybody's down on the Auburn receivers. Everybody, by default, has to have Auburn outside of the top 10 in receiving. Why? Because they lost their top three receivers. How could you legitimately put Auburn any higher than that? Yeah. Because you have no production on these guys. You have no film on these guys. There's no way you. There's no way that you can put it higher than that. Internally, by week three, week four, we're all going to take a sigh of relief and say, it's not that bad. They're, that, they're, they're better than 11th in the SEC. You're going to say, this is a top seven, top six group, because it's Auburn. Right, and uh, something that we've talked about recently, it's it's not like Auburn's been recruiting the receiver position poorly. I mean, Mal- Malzahn had, had Auburn's receivers year in and year out. I think we that there was a 24-7 sports article I was looking at. Average, when you average it out, they were second best in the SEC, only behind Georgia. Auburn was tied with Alabama in terms of like, I think it was 24-7's recruiting rankings, like the receivers that they've gotten. So Auburn's been able to get their own in terms of recruiting receivers. These guys are talented. We just haven't seen them yet. I think Auburn's offensive line is going to be much improved this year. That's one area where a lot of folks are down on. Offensive line and receiver are the two areas you point to for why this Auburn team will not achieve anything this year close to you know 10 11 wins right that's the thing that folks have pointed to consistently as why this coaching staff will have a hard time succeeding this year but there are some folks out there that believe in this Auburn offensive line Phil still actually has them as a top 25 offensive line in the country there was an SB Nation website it was an LSU SB Nation website I believe it was yesterday they had put out an article grading Auburn or the SEC offensive lines they had Auburn at one I flat the, out disagree with that. That's so that's so insane. I like that energy, but I, I flat out disagree. Yeah, shout out to the LSU fan that wrote that article, but uh, uh, you you obviously didn't watch enough last season. You actually go back if you're listening right now. Look at some tape from that Georgia game. Go and watch some quarterback. Go watch some Bo Nix analysis from that Georgia. If that game. LSU fan is listening right yeah, now. If you're, you're telling me to go back, yeah, go back and, <laughs> and watch that there. and watch that game. And I know scheme was a major factor in Auburn's issues last season. 
But that offensive line struggled against really good competition, and that Georgia game was a perfect example of it. And so my question is, you really think they can make that jump from middle of the pack to below average to first in the SEC? I don't know. I don't know. The numbers deceive people with the offensive line a bit because on the one hand, they only gave up 20 sacks last year, which which isn't a whole bunch. I mean, you divide that by the 11 games that they played, they gave up less than two sacks a ball game, right? But on the flip side, Bo Nix was forced to scramble, leave the pocket a lot. How much of that was his own doing? How much of that was what this coaching staff instructed him to do? How much of that was actual legitimate pressure? I think it's a conglomeration of all of those issues. How much of it was the previous receivers not getting open because they weren't very good at doing that either? Once again, I go back to you have to throw out, maybe this should be the title of today's podcast when we put it up. Everything that had to do with that previous coaching staff just throw it out the window. Throw it out the window. It's not a thing anymore. Yep. Now, if this coaching staff does it, well, then it's a thing again, right? But it's not a thing right now because they aren't here anymore. And all of that is going to change. I think these receivers are going to be able to get open better. This line is going to block better. It's a better team than what people are projecting it as right now. There is talent and there is experience. And with Auburn football, where there is talent and where there is experience, it typically the stars seem to align best in the sec i'm kidding don't get get that far don't get that far but i don't think they're going to be bad i think they're still going to be a good football team nine wins that's where i've got them in my mind right now this week i'm going to spend time going through the entire league and i'm going to predict every single game and then i will have what i will vote vote on when we go to media day as my projected standings oh i haven't done that i need to get on that man thank you for reminding me i got this week i'm going through that but for Auburn right now, I am not, and people know this, I am not down on them like like folks think because this is, roster-wise, it's still talented and it's experienced. There's only one position group that is not experienced, and that is wide receiver room. And I want to go back to this. You remember what I said late last week? It was either Friday or Thursday. Auburn typically goes to an SEC championship every 4.3 seasons. Guess how many seasons that's been since the last time they went to an SEC championship. It's been four. This is the fourth season. So since 2004, they are on average 4.3 seasons removed from the last SEC championship when they go to another one. The largest gap was 2004 to 2010. That was the largest gap. Since then, I mean, it's like clockwork. It's bang, bang, bang. This year would be that year. And, And I think it's fair to look at programs that way because rosters are cyclical. It's based off of a lot of programs have trends like that based off of how that they recruit. And Malzahn had a long enough tenure to where fathomably you can say, yes, this roster is experienced enough and talented enough to be a good football team. I'm not saying SEC championship, but be a good football team. And we saw something similar with Paul Johnson at Georgia Tech. Like literally every third year, they'd be fantastic. And then the next two years, they'd be average or terrible. It was just, it was, it was a cycle over and over again. So I understand what you're saying. You're not saying Auburn's going to the SEC championship game, but you're saying they will be good. It's an upper trajectory this season. They're going to be good. History tells us. And next year, as we pointed out several times, they will be worse. Next year will be the step back year, but this is the year where it's going to be good. This is the year, boys. Bonix is focused and having fun, baby. Come on with it. Let's take a quick break here. We wrap up hour number one when we come back. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. A fun hour number one here on the show. Before we wrap up hour number one, I'm going to take you through what's on TV tonight. 
It's the last round of qualifiers on American Ninja Warrior at 7 on NBC. Some movie selections for tonight. Bohemian Rhapsody is on FX at 6. Deadpool is on FX Movies at 6 as well. With Black, with Black Widow out in theaters, folks are locked back into Marvel. We talked about that actually last week. Really good movie, but Doctor Strange is on TNT at 6.30. Adam Sandler and Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston star in Just Go With It at 7 on MTV. Live sports tonight, the 2021 Home Run Derby is on ESPN at 7. The United States Olympic basketball team is continuing its prep for the Olympics after a shocking loss to Nigeria a few days ago. They play Australia at 7 on NBC Sports. CONCACAF Gold Cup Soccer continues with Group C play between Jamaica and Suriname at 5.30 and Costa Rica versus Guadalupe at 8. That's it for What's On TV tonight. Lance, what will your television be on? My television will probably... I've not seen Bohemian Rhapsody yet, actually. I never saw it, and I didn't see the Elton John movie, actually, whenever it was it was in theater. So I may tune into that tonight. Sports, man. Sports. Home Run Derby, maybe for a little bit. I actually get bored watching the Home Run Derby. That may be an unpopular opinion, but it's the same thing. You know, I don't... You either know. hit one or you don't. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's ooh. Right. <laughs> that will also be on ESPN 106.7 tonight. You'll be able to listen to that as well. I'll probably watch a little bit of soccer as well, but United States Olympic basketball also always fun. We're in a really bad time in the sports world at the moment. Really bad time. I'm a big soccer fan, so I'm still able to watch the United States. But other folks out there that are not soccer fans, which I know I am largely outnumbered, this is a really bad time in sports. But you are only a week away from me today, and then you can start going back to yelling at each other at the water cooler over sports. I'm just waiting for football, man. I'm just waiting for football now that Acuna is injured. I'm just cat and the Cubs are doing terrible. I'm just checked out. I'm like I'll see I'll see y'all at media days and then I'll see you whenever 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 fall camp starts. And until that point, I'm out. <laughs> Auburn target Micah Pollard makes his decision at 3 p.m. via Twitter. He's a linebacker about to make his decision this afternoon coming up in about five minutes we're going to keep you up to date with what goes on there but what is at play here a couple of teams in the mix for Pollard Michigan one of those teams I believe UCF also in the mix Auburn of course this is an Auburn linebacker target I got a vibe here though uh I feel like I feel like Pollard's probably going to choose Auburn, but this is this is a really close race at the moment. Yeah, I think it's a close race. You look at twenty four seven Sports crystal balls though, and every single one of them is is towards Michigan, including a couple of Auburn undercover writers believe that he is he is going to Michigan. But but who knows? Who knows? We'll we'll see what happens. And something else uh, interesting to note: I think it's going to be frustrating for Auburn fans in the future if Auburn's competing with a recruit with UCF and then UCF steals it. It's just like. Malzahn stealing from his his former program I just think that's funny to think about I wonder where this plays into with the recruitment of Caden Story Caden Story and Mm -hmm. Micah Pollard are cousins and their recruitment seems to be very closely linked and Caden Story is an Auburn lead that's why I come back to I think that this is a really close this is a really close battle at the moment so it'll be it's it's very interesting I'm keyed in on this for when he makes his announcement supposedly coming up in three minutes and 40 seconds, according yep. to 24-7 Sports. Yep. 6'3", so, 200 pounds. I'll take him. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we will kick off hour number two, see if Pollard has made his announcement. We'll tell you about it. We'll also give you our reactions from the weekend. You're listening to On the Line.
are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you for hour number two of the show. 334-321-1390 is how you call in. Text line at 334-564-1840. We're keeping everybody up to date on the commitment of Micah Pollard. He just announced his decision via Twitter, and it is the Michigan Wolverines. I thought Auburn had a little bit better of a shot for this, and we don't know how close it was, but it is the Michigan Wolverines. The big reason why I thought Auburn had a pretty good shot at this was because his cousin, and these two, their their recruitment closely linked, his cousin is Caden Story. He announces his decision on August 1st. So a couple of weeks away from that, and Caden Story's an Auburn lead right now, at least across the various recruiting sites. So, interesting. It's interesting, and, uh, you know, 24-7 sports, like like I mentioned before, we went to break. Uh, most of the guys on their on their website had uh, had uh, Pollard listed as a Michigan guy. Most of the crystal balls did, and you know I, I I agree with you after you mentioned the fact I didn't know that they were cousins. I didn't know that their recruitment was was kind of kind of linked to together. Um, but you know, it's just you know Auburn misses sometimes, and I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'm not saying that Auburn's recruiting poorly right now. It's just Auburn's not recruiting to the standard that they could. I'll I'll say that. Michael Pollard, three-star linebacker, number 56 linebacker in the country, 550th nationally, three-star according to 24-7 Sports Composite out of Bartram Trail High School in Jacksonville, Florida. Is that not where a Mr. Joey Gatewood played high school football? I think he did play at Bartram Trail. But let's head to the phone line now, 334-321-1390. Terry on the line with us. Terry, how's your Monday going? Fantastic, guys. How's y'all? It's going pretty well. It's going pretty well. Great. I'm not as concerned about the recruiting as a lot of people because I feel like a lot of the younger guys in school want to see Auburn on the field first, see what Brian Harson's going to offer, um, if, if there's any kind of consistency, because that's the name of the game, consistency. Auburn has been so inconsistent. Uh, they want consistency. And, and you know, so I'm, 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 not, I'm not real surprised. I agree with surprised. you. I'm just curious how many of those guys, how many players actually wait, like how many of the highly touted players actually wait to commit during the season and don't wrap it up because I know a lot of guys want to get that part of their senior season out of the way before they step onto the high school football field this fall. But do you guys feel like that Brian Harson, with the activity and the the portal and and that some of the guys has added to the team, is setting up for a really good run for one year run before he can establish some kind of consistency? Because I do. I feel like he's establishing a, a you know a, a, trying to establish a good run one good year. And I really feel like that'd be the worst thing because let's, let's not remember or let's not forget Gus Malzahn's first year was awesome. I mean, if I told you we're going to tip a pass and beat Georgia or run a missed field goal back against Alabama, nobody would have believed me. Right. So, you know, it, I just say, you know, a 10 win season, which is ridiculous from the point of view we're all looking at right now, but it could be the worst thing that could happen to Brian Harson, quite honestly, because you could end up like Malzahn. And, and a lot that of that had to do with expectations. expectations. Yeah, a lot thing, of, you know, a seven-win season has looked, looked upon pretty bad. 
And next year, I, I think that's probably more of what you're looking at considering everything that's going to leave after this year. But with that being said, I, I understand where you're coming from from the expectations point of view, but I think Auburn needs to win this year and, and win at a surprising level to actually elevate their recruiting during the season to get the attention of some of these recruits that maybe aren't paying them any attention right now because they don't have any relationships. I don't disagree with that at all. And so I I think Harson does need to hit nine this year to get people's attention. Eight, maybe some folks out there will be surprised of that if they thought really lowly of Auburn, but Auburn's been doing eight and four every year for the past five seasons, you know, or at least going back to 2017, they've been doing eight and four, losing four games every season. So I think they do need to do something a little bit different than that this year to get folks' attention to try and kind of jumpstart recruiting a little bit because they, they need they need a defibrillator pretty bad. Terry, I think that's a really, really good point about Brian Harson and his trajectory. Like, what if Auburn won 10 games this season? I think that's a fantastic point. We've been using a traffic light to determine how we feel about recruiting, and we just got a text from Spectre, and his light is still flashing red. He believes that he is in Auburn is in full panic mode in terms of recruiting. Where are you sitting right now? Are you green? You think Auburn recruiting's going fine? Are you yellow? Are you just really cautious right now? Um, probably just cautious, just, 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 because I, I really think of the kids are waiting to see how it goes on the field, quite honestly. So, yeah, there's a degree of caution there. I think, I think of the player's point of view and, and for what it's worth, my point of view, which is nothing. But you guys were talking a few minutes ago about the wide receivers uh, at Auburn. Right. And they're consistent. Look, a wide receiver's only as good as the guy throwing the ball. You guys know how I feel about that. <laughs> That's right, Terry. So, um, I, just, I just, you know, I just, I just, people blow that out of proportion too much. I think Elijah Candy's got the makings of something really big. You said uh, you have, really he do. has the makings to be something really big. Yes, yes. I'm with you. He's high on my list. He's number two on my list, actually. I got Robertson I, at number one, and then Canyon at two. I really do. He just, he just, he just strikes me as that kind of guy who has a, a real promising future. He just got to get somebody can throw in the ball. And during a day, he was Bo Nix's favorite target. Led all receivers in a days spring game stats he had the most receptions I don't know I think he had the most yards too and then of course he had one of Auburn's only two touchdowns of course and the other one was from a running back so he was Bo Nix's favorite target he accounted actually for half of Bo Nix's or almost half of Bo Nix's receiving yards oh my god no if you were a Seth Williams jersey and sat in the stands he'd try to throw it to you <laughs> well that <laughs> might actually be what Elijah Canyon's turning into it at the moment is, is a little bit of his Seth Williams bailout guy but I don't like it to quit simply based on the fact that I feel like Bo Nix is just one of those guys that he eyes down one receiver too much. It, I mean, everybody knew he was looking for Seth Williams last year. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the scheme, too. And I've said this throughout the show, and probably going to be the title of our podcast today, is everything that had to do with the previous coaching staff, throw it out the window. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think we know what percentage of Bo Nix at this point, or anybody else in this offense, how much of a percentage did the coaching staff and the scheme have to play in what we saw on the field and it it probably had a very very large percentage I'll say that's why I still think Bo Nix is going to develop out into being a, a good good player under this coaching staff that's done really well with quarterbacks so I'd be you patient think, Terry. You think that, huh? I do think that okay. <laughs> All right. well good luck um I mean seriously guys but did, Bo, did I hear that Bo Nix signed an NIL deal with with Milo's T he did okay well, you know what? They have absolutely nothing in common because Milo's tea is actually pretty good most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I'm not. I'm not really a Milo's guy, believe it or not. I'm not. I like to. I like to brew it at home. You know, I, I, the old-fashioned way. I, I like it better than something. Well, if you don't like stormy. Milo's tea and you think uh, and you think um, Bud Nix is going to have a good year, that says a lot for you, right there. <laughs> Terry, I appreciate you oh, calling man. in, my man. Take care. 
That was Terry on the line with us. 334-321-1390. Text line 334-564-1840. I go back to this and I say, as my wife now texts me and says, I love Milo's. Most everybody that I do know loves Milo's. I'm not hating on it. It's just I, I favor a little bit, little bit more, you know. Keep it real. I've never had it, so. What? I just I told you I don't like sweet tea that much. I've just not I've not exposed myself to a lot of sweet tea in my life. So what sweet tea have you exposed yourself to? Um, you probably don't even know the brands. N- uh, my dad used to make a lot of Lipton. He okay. would like my he taught me and my sister how to make uh, sweet tea so that every now and then we could make some sweet tea for everyone. But I never drank it because I didn't I didn't like it that much. I got you. I got you. I'm trying to remember where I was going. Yes, we've now gone down the sweet tea trail here, <laughs> but. I think a lot of what happened on the field the past two seasons at the quarterback position has a lot to do with Gus Malzahn. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to harp on this coaching staff over and over and over again, but I, I understand people being disgruntled with the play at the quarterback position, but I also think equally you have to have some type of optimism and some type of hope for the future at the position as well because there's obviously talent there they just need to be sent in the right direction and this coaching staff i believe will do that if you don't believe that well then you probably have a very low opinion of the coaches that have came into Auburn's program recently and that you probably also believe that they are not going to be very successful they better be successful with this quarterback room and it's okay it's okay to have your own opinion it's okay to think things like that but at the same time there's a reason that this that this university got rid of Gus Malzahn and there's a reason that they brought Brian Harson in it's because they could believe that that Harson could compete better than Malzahn could so they obviously have high expectations of him a question I want to pose to you is if Malzahn and I, I agree with you I think Malzahn definitely was a huge factor in the development of Bo Nix because it's, um, it's the coaching staff. It's like the coaching they, they, staff. They, like it's their responsibility. But my question to you is: is how does that affect now? Malzahn uh, is coaching uh, UCF quarterback Dillian Gabriel. How does that affect Gabriel? Do you think he's going to be able to progress, or do you think Malzahn's going to hold him back? The answer to that question is in Nick Marshall. He gets Nick Marshall, and Nick Marshall have been playing DB at Georgia. He gets Nick Marshall. Nick Marshall worked out fine. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of the development of a quarterback because look at the quarterbacks that have not panned out at Auburn it's been more of guys Mm. that have been in the program longer term than players that have not he did wonders with Chris Todd in his first season back in 2009 or that was Chris Todd's second year on campus but it was Gus Malzahn's first year on campus he did wonders with Chris Todd he did wonders with I mean, Jared Stidham had, for yeah. all intents and purposes, he had a successful first season, bad a very second successful season, first right? Season, yeah. And I think there are instances of QBs getting better. Nick Marshall got better in year two as a passer. I really do believe that. But there have been other quarterbacks that have not panned out from being in the program longer term, namely Jeremy Johnson. Sean White, I thought, was fine, but didn't actually, you know, just jump off the page down the line either. I mean, he ultimately lost his job to Jared Stidham, but it's been kind of one hit wonders. For yeah. some of the quarterbacks from Alzon, where he had one year with them, and it was their first year where they were ultimately the most successful. Aside from Nick Marshall, Nick Marshall did get a, a lot better as a passer year two. I thought we really saw him develop there. So yeah, Malzahn quarterback development that 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 is a that is a hole that we're going on that we're going down now apparently. But we got Brett on the line with us three three four three two one thirteen ninety. That's how you call in, Brett. What's up? Hey, I, I hate to hit Terry with some facts, but uh, if Bo Nix was eyeing down uh, Seth Williams every play, it's kind of odd that uh, Schwartz finished with uh, more catches than he did, isn't it? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, he did. Uh, oh, By Owen, seven. Owen, Owen Eli Stove had uh, three less, so I'm thinking he didn't name down every play. Sure. That is factually correct. Any response? That is factually yeah. correct. Right. Anthony Schwartz had 54 catches for 636 yards, and Seth Williams had 47 for 760 and then the uh, receivers were all pretty equal as far as touchdowns were concerned. Four touchdowns for Seth Williams, three catches for Anthony, uh, three touchdown catches for Anthony Schwartz, and three for Eli Stove. I wouldn't say that Williams was the guy that Nix was staring down. I just think we rem- 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 remember Williams because he was Nix's bailout guy, and he he was he had some really, really big targeted, moments. I think. Yeah, he was definitely targeted. But then also you think about the drops that Williams has. Um, he's he he had quite a few last season. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that Knicks was staring him down every single play. Obviously, he was able to go to Schwartz and, and Stove quite a bit, um, but he was that bailout guy. He was the guy that Knicks tried tried to go to at least uh, more more often than not. But the, not not to discredit the other two receivers. Those whatever those are the t- t- statistics. Uh, Schwartz had more receptions than than Williams did. So Seth Williams, according to Pro Football Focus, wow, this is hmm, this ain't good. Well, Seth Williams at, was at the top of the room, according to Pro Football Focus, in targets. He had 100 targets last year, led the entire receiver room with 100. So it's factually correct to say that Bo Nix went Seth Williams' way a lot and more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Was that the only guy I was looking at? No, because Anthony Schwartz was second in the room with 85, only 15 less. So he was right up there with him. Eli Stove had half of that. He was at 53. Half of Seth Williams' targets, that is, almost. So he was 53 targets to Seth Williams, 100. Then you look at the receiving percentage for these guys mm-hmm. and how many of those targets were actually caught. And it got higher the fewer the targets, right? So like Seth Williams was targeted the most out of all the receivers. He only hauled in 47 of the 100 targets that were thrown his way. Wow. Less than half the time a pass was thrown to Seth Williams, it was caught. Now that doesn't necessarily mean it was a drop. It just means that I think what that tells you is that the ball was forced to Seth Williams a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm not disagreeing with Brett. Brett is factually correct, 100. percent I, I don't. I don't think that. So that's what that's what I was kind of saying. Is while I don't necessarily think he was the guy that Nick's was staring down all the time, he was definitely his bailout guy. And while he may have Most not favorite come, target, yeah, he may have not come down with all the passes. There were a lot of the SEC stat cats. Another really good place to go and look. Williams had a lot of drops, and there were a lot of inaccurate balls thrown his way. And not only were they inaccurate, I think a large portion of it was it was not necessarily the right decision from Seth Williams a lot of times that the ball may have been thrown his way, right? So, like, you look at 100 targets and 47 catches, how many drops did he have last year? They do have that stat on here. Let me see. Seth Williams had eight drops last year. So eight of the 53 misses last season to Seth Williams – Eight of the 53 misses were drops. Mm-hmm. So 45 of those misses were either an inaccurate pass, was it a catchable ball, or it was the wrong decision for Bo Nix to throw it there. Yep. And it was heavily covered, and it was just batted down or yep. picked off. And I'm not saying this to be dramatic, but I'm, I'm almost positive, even though Pro Football Focus only has it at eight, Williams dropped at least 10 passes last season. Like, I, like I, at some point during the season I was counting, there, like he... He would not come down. And it was way worse than it was his previous year. Let's see. They should have so contested targets. So 30 times last year of the 100 pass targets to Seth Williams. These stats are according to Pro Football Focus. Mm-hmm. 100 targets to Seth Williams total last year. 30% of them were contested. Seth Williams hauled in nine of those. Mm. 
So maybe maybe I'm thinking more of Williams got his hand on it, but it was more deflected. Maybe that's kind of what I'm. What well, I'm I wasn't disagreeing with you. I think what that tells you right there is that, and I think three of the passes that were thrown his way were picked off. I think something that that tells you right there about Seth Williams is 30% of the time, it may have not been the right decision or yeah. a little bit around that. And the the perfect example of that is Nick's throwing that interception at South Carolina where, where it came off of Seth Williams' arm and the uh, South Carolina defensive back dove and caught it off the ground. But it wasn't Williams' fault necessarily because Nick's threw it behind Seth. Let's see if any of the other guys... Oh, man, get this. Only three contested passes thrown to Anthony Schwartz out of <laughs> wow. his 85 targets. And only two were thrown to Eli Stove out of his 53. Man. Eli Stove had an 83% reception rate, meaning that 83% of the balls thrown his way, he hauled in. Contested and all. Everything baked into that. You talk Very about You talk about scheme and you talk about how that bad That should Mal tell Zong you everything was. you need to know right there. That's it right there. But I go back to, is that Bo Nix or is that the scheme? Was that, because we know that Gus Malzahn's offense definitely predicated on a one-read offense. Mm-hmm. It was definitely predicated on, you look at, this play is designed for a receiver and then you either have a second option or you have, or you tuck it and run or you throw it away, right? And it was definitely... A lot of the times, it seemed like the game plan was for Seth Williams, but all very interesting points, all I think, very interesting. I think it's fair to say a little bit of both, that it's Nick's fault and the scheme, but at the same time, this staff should have coached Nick's up in, in two years to, to get him to the point where he was he was more comfortable and he was making better decisions. Because he was. it's not like he was a five-star quarterback for nothing. These are some crazy stats. I, I, I hadn't, I'm, I'm so happy I have pro football focus. <laughs> Let's take a quick break here. We got two callers on the line with us. Spectre, Dan, stay put. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay tuned. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call, 334-321-1390. And we're going to head back to the phone line. Spectre, we appreciate you waiting patiently. What's up, my man? Hey, uh, this recruit that... uh picked uh, Michigan over us. Do you have any idea what made his decision yet? No, I know that uh, Crystal Balls, as Lance had, had put out a lot of times, he saw on 24-7 sports that Michigan was favored, and they were favored highly. I mean, they, they were a seven right there. But what's interesting about this and what I pointed out and what's in some articles out there is Micah Pollard, that's the recruit that we're talking about here, He's his recruitment's been closely linked with Caden Stories. And I wonder what that means for Caden's story because I don't know how much of a legitimate player Michigan is actually it is because it's mainly been an Auburn and UCF race and so they may be going separate ways depending on where they go you know where depending on what you, school go ahead where are they where are they from uh Caden's story's from Lynette so he's a, he's a four-star number 11 player in the state of Alabama he's actually the brother of Christian story that played for Lynette that's now at Alabama yeah. And then yeah, Michael Pollard is from actually the same school that Joey Gatewood played ball at, at Bartram Trail in Jacksonville, Florida. They're cousins. Yeah, okay. Well, I don't know. I, I don't see how anybody could pick Ann Arbor. Man, that's cold there. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. It's, it's a long and, ways. It, typically, people come from Michigan to Florida, not vice versa. Yeah, and uh, it's, something, it's something to say about our recruiters, I guess. Uh, so I'm still flashing red until I can see something changing. You know, I, I'll say this too. I don't know how much, I don't know how hard Auburn wanted Micah Pollard to, though. 
I would I would I would look at it in that lens was was Auburn really really badly wanting Micah Pollard compared to Michigan that might have also played into it because I don't yeah. have a good I, I don't think Auburn's trying to build their recruiting class on guys that are ranked outside the top 500 in national recruits yeah that's what I was about to say is is to you Spectre is like I think the positive way to look at this is Auburn can get a better kid than, than this guy right here they can get a four or five star linebacker so what's all the build-up then right now you mean like what's holding them back no no what's all the build-up about the power guy if he wasn't that good uh his connection to Caden's story and their recruitment being leads because I, I think there's been some suggestions out there that they would try and go to the same school but if you know if you look anywhere on you know profiles about Caden's story Michigan's not really a player whatsoever I actually don't even see him on his offer list for for Caden's story so they were cousins that that was the main reason if I remember right Gatewood was like a uh, player recruiter for us trying to get that kid out of Phoenix City and a receiver that ended up going to Clemson Justin Ross or Lawson <laughs> Justin Ross, yes. That, yeah. that, I think that's his name. Yeah, that was uh, uh, several years ago. Yeah, so I didn't work out too good either. All right, that's all I got, guys. Appreciate it, Spectre. All right. That was Spectre on the line with us. 334-321-1390 is how you can call in. And now we are going to head back to the phone line, and we are going to go to Dan on the line with us. Dan, how you doing today? Dan staff are y'all there yeah we do do we have you okay yeah we got you um a lot of stuff was said about the last coaching staff and then the past plays we ran and stuff and you know just from hearing things from some of the players you know now that I've actually heard you know obviously we know the offense was very basic you know but when a comment was made that hey we had like three pass plays that tied in under you know the last staff and now we have like 50 <laughs> and you got a lot up in multiple positions and everything else it just goes to show how basic it is. And if you are running plays, which we all, I would always wonder why it looked like one guy was actually running on the field and the other two guys were just jogging, you know, like they just knew they weren't in the play or that they were decoys or whatever. And it's like, you know, if we can see that as fans and we know what's going on, the defensive guys kind of know what's going on. You know, they know if you're going to going to key on Seth Williams or, or they know that we're throwing to him a lot, then they're going to key on him knowing that we're not going to throw to the other guys. And so then Bo drops back to pass. And, of course, his main target, his only target, is covered. Then then he has no choice. I mean, he's going to scramble around and try to make something happen. So, you know, I don't know if you can really, you know, say the players did a bad job or Bo did a bad job or, or whatever. Because, you know, if you don't give them a system that, that can be successful, then, you know, I mean, there's, I mean it's just not going to work. I agree with that, you know. and and opposing teams, and you know there there was when Auburn lost to Tennessee in 2018, and there was you know that video of Jeremy Pruitt yelling out from the sideline like screen or whatever, and then it was the exact same play. It's just that there were definitely you you knew what was coming. It was very predictable. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, and if you're running plays now, which is what I've been told just from different players and stuff, where you know you're running something where the quarterback has three different options. You know, and then and if those aren't open, then he's usually got somebody he can dump it off to, whether it's a running back or a tight end or something. I mean, that gives the guy a, a lot of tools to work with, you know, versus, you know, if the play's a bust and then there's just nowhere to go. You're just, like, literally, you know, running for your life. So, I mean, we I don't think we have any idea how good Bo can be. You know, he obviously was highly rated in high school. He threw for 12,000 yards, 
You know, we know he's athletic as can be, but man, imagine if you can give him like a good situation. You know, where where with you know we have quality receivers. You know, we, yeah, we added another good one, but but you know, just the offense in, in general. You know, if it's as, as much better as it seems like it's going to be, then then I, then I don't know how. You know, he's not going to thrive or or be much better. Yeah, I agree with you, and something that I've continued to say is there's a reason that this kid was a five-star quarterback coming out of high school, and I think also some of his mechanical issues and his tendencies were not necessarily his fault. I think, again, I agree with you. I think it goes back to scheme and the offensive line and him literally just not having time to throw the football, so I I agree with you. I think Bo Nix, with a new scheme and with a good offensive coordinator, I think he's going to do just fine this year. Yeah. Hey, appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Dan. Don't be a stranger, my man. That was Dan on the line with us. If you want to call in, 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564-1840. We got a couple of texts, Lance. Yeah, we got a couple of texts. We got one uh, here from Austin. He said, hey, guys, for the 2021 season, which game will Auburn call a trick play? And if they do, what type of play will it be? And then he said, thank you so much for what you do for the community. War Eagle. You know, I like this question because Brian Harson is from Trick Play University, Boise State. This guy was there in the Fiesta Bowl when they played Oklahoma. He knows something about trick plays, and I think that's something that hasn't been talked about hardly at all at this point. Hasn't been talked about hardly at all about if that will play an impact in this. And I, I don't think this is going to be a gimmicky offense. I don't want people to take that the wrong way because Malzahn had gimmicks. He didn't have trick plays. He had gimmicks. All right, that was there. There's a little bit of a difference. There was a consistent, there was a consistent approach to using players the way that he used JJ Pegues. You know, like where he would he would set up a flare route to JJ Pegues by running the same type of run action over and over again, and he would just do a do do it all for eight yards to JJ Pegues. And, and you and, notice and, towards the end of the season, people figured that out. And, and there were a ton of gadget guys throughout his time at Auburn and whatnot tons of gadget guys at Gus Malzahn so I I think that there's a difference there there will be trick plays used it's going to be in a fun way just like they were at Boise I will say this Penn State going Penn State you don't see that against Akron and Alabama State they're not going to reveal that that's going to stay in their playbook Penn State Penn State I'm going that early what kind of trick play Ooh, I don't know. I haven't thought that far. You got to think about that for a second. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't watched enough Boise State or, or Brian Harson football to know that one, but I do think you will see a trick play of some nature in that Penn State game. That's my answer. We got to head to a quick break here. We got 30 minutes left in the Monday edition of On the Line. Stay on the line. More of the show when we come back. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text line, 334-564-1840. Lance, going back to the text line as well, we had uh, another text. I, I think you mentioned something about the NBA playoffs as well. Yeah, let me pull it up here just real quick. And this was this was the text, the entire text. So you talked about how great the Bucks did last night. I don't have skin in this game, but I'm a sports guy. I was really annoyed watching the officiating in this game. Did you notice how fast the refs blew the whistle once Giannis barely approached the paint? Hmm, seems like the league is trying to stretch things out. Phoenix didn't get those calls, but Phoenix went threes at home and, or took threes at home and didn't really need those calls at the same time. Didn't really enjoy the game overall, though, because of, that ch- in, because of the fouls and 
change the channel at the end of the third. I didn't realize we talked about this. <laughs> I didn't realize we talked about it either. <laughs> I love it though. Thanks for thanks for the text three three four five six four one eight four zero. Any thoughts on the NBA Finals game yesterday? I didn't watch a whole lot of it, but I will say the parts that I did watch, I was really confused. Phoenix didn't get anything. They didn't get any calls whatsoever last night. I didn't see what was happening uh, for, for Giannis. I, w- I didn't see the fouls, but every time I looked up, he was at the free throw line. And he w- because uh, Milwaukee wasn't throwing a fit about how long he took, he actually made, uh, it was, I think it was well over 70% of his free throws last night. Like He took a lot, and I could pull it up here real, really quick, but... Uh, I mean, he yeah. had 41. I'll say this: Game three went exactly the way I thought it would. Yeah, they didn't. They they got no calls whatsoever. Game three went exactly the way I thought it would. Last week, I said that the Bucks would take Game three. I, with that being said, the Suns come back and take Game four. He on shot Wednesday. He shot 17 free throws and made 13 of them. It's not that bad for Giannis. 76. percent I mean, b- for him. based on what he's been doing in the playoffs, it's really good. He's been shooting 57 percent from the free throw line in the playoffs. Good so. for that guy. Good for good him. Good for him. And uh, and Phoenix could not shoot. Worth a rip. No, it was the first game in this series that both Chris Paul and Devin Booker did not score at least 20 points. Both of them had less than 20. Now, I don't know how far that goes back, how long of a streak that was prior to the NBA Finals. I think that would be interesting to look at as well. But I know in the NBA Finals alone, both games up to this point, Chris Paul and Devin Booker have gotten theirs. They did not get theirs last night. You had to know, and there were games throughout the playoffs, that the Suns were going to cool off. At some point, the star was going to burn out. It will heat back up yet again. Yep. They, that, that's just how it is for teams that shoot the basketball as much as the Suns do from beyond the arc. Eventually, they go cold, and when they go cold, they get blown out, i.e. look at Auburn basketball. It happens to them. They're a prime example of that. So if folks want me to localize that a bit, Suns, Auburn basketball, You know when you shoot the basketball as much as they do from beyond the arc, you're bound to go cold eventually, and when you do, you're going to get blown out. The Bucks are a great offensive team, at least during the regular season they were. They've been dealing with injuries a little bit, which has caused a little bit of inconsistency here as of late. Game three was not the the it, it was a must win for the Bucks, but game four is a must win for the Bucks as well. The Bucks have to, had to win both games at home to get back into this series. Mm-hmm. They are not in my mind fully back into the series yet. Of course, they're only down two one. But if they don't win game four, this is as far away as it was when the Suns went in to Milwaukee, up 2-0. They're still up by two games, right? And they're only one win away from that point from winning the NBA Finals. Right. And there's at least three games left. So can the Suns win one out of three? Very much so. Yes, they can. And so game four is the real pivotal matchup. Game three was a must. On It was on a checklist. Bucks had to win it. But just because they won it didn't mean that they were out of the woods yet. And the Suns very much so are a team that can get hot again in a hurry. And this is the type of, I I think the Suns win game four and this thing goes in five. Well, I think, uh, yeah, they've definitely got to be able to shoot, shoot better. But I remember I was listening to the game. Uh, I, I wasn't looking up at the at the the TV, but the the play by play guy said the Suns have shot 12 of 18 from the field in this third quarter. And the Bucks' lead has increased. And then literally after that, he was like, Middleton for three. Bang. And it's just like, all right, well, game's over at this point. I think it was just Milwaukee just was, was shooting the lights out, of, lights out of it. They were shooting 39% from three. I believe they made 14 of those. Phoenix only made nine threes the entire game. And six of those came from Jay Crowder. He shot six of seven from three. Uh, but the uh, Suns are not going to shoot po- that poorly forever. The Stars, Booker, Paul, they're not going to shoot that badly. Going back to some of those numbers that we were looking at, as far as 
Auburn's receiving numbers, what the passing game looked like last year. We got a lot of discourse about that, and that's awesome. We love it. Call in 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564-1840. I broke down a lot of Bo Nick stats for you. A lot of Bo Nick stats. Namely, those Seth Williams statistical breakdown for him where he had the most targets out of any Auburn receiver, 100 targets, and you look at his contested targets, 30 of the 100 were contested targets. So Bonex, I think there is some evidence to suggest that Bonex really did key in on Seth Williams if you're looking for statistical support. Now, in terms of production, it was pretty even. Seth Williams wasn't even the leading receiver from a reception standpoint. He was from yards, but not from receptions. And then, of course, he led the team at touchdowns as well, but it was pretty even across the touchdowns as well. Four for Williams, three for Schwartz, and three for Stove. Yardage-wise, 760 for Williams, 636 for Schwartz, and 359 for Stove. Receptions, though, 54 for Schwartz, 47 for Williams, and 44 for Stove. But I think, undeniably, when you look at the numbers here, Seth Williams was put in a much more difficult position than any of the other receivers on average. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was just by nature and by virtue of the types of routes that Seth Williams was asked to run. Schwartz and Eli Stove were incorporated much closer to the line of scrimmage than Seth Williams was. So, I'm going to ask you a question, but it's not necessarily going to be the same situation obviously as last season do we see a guy in this receiver room potentially in your mind if you just had to guess do we see yes or no a guy that gets targeted as much as Seth Williams did last season do we see do we see that much not necessarily production but just that that volume of targets or do you think it's going to be spread out a little bit it's going to be spread out more even now there will be more efficient every football team is going to have a couple of guys towards the top that have more targets than everybody else. But I do think that this is a little bit more even and there's a little bit more diversity in the route trees that are going to be run. That's This is a much more modern offense than maybe at least a much more modern passing scheme and a much more diverse passing scheme than what the previous coaching staff was running, mainly because it has to be or else it's going to get shut down. But this receiver room was dominated heavily by targets to seth williams and anthony schwartz 100 right. for seth williams 85 for anthony schwartz last year based off of the numbers that i'm looking at right now and these are just by the book these aren't you know pff's grading system this is just their targets how many drops that they had how you know what was their catch rate you know how many catches did they have of the targets that were sent their way eli stove was the best receiver at auburn last year and they didn't go to him very often no they didn't no they didn't was so that also begs the question was Eli Stove the best receiver at Auburn last year because of that though um was it because he was not targeted a ton because if he was if he was the best receiver in the room and he was targeted as much as Seth Williams was he would not have been nearly as successful as Seth Williams was last year I think we would both agree with that yeah I, I would agree with that if you were asking somebody else um they'd probably rationally say yes but my thing is is I've not been high on Seth Williams his entire career at Auburn um, I've had some people disagree with me on that. I don't think he. I don't think he's a very good receiver. Um, and last off season, um, yeah, it was no. Actually, it was. I want to say late December, early January. Um, I was in the Locked On Auburn Discord, the Locked On Auburn Podcast Discord, um, and everybody was ranking their top ten receivers at Auburn of all time, and then they were ranking their top ten receivers of the past, or I think of the of the Gus Malzahn tenure. And I did not have, I don't think I had uh, Williams in like my top three or four. And 
everybody freaked out about it. So I went on to the Locked On podcast uh, the, the next day on the next episode, and I explained it. And I went to SEC StatCat, and I explained why he was not as productive as or as efficient as some of Auburn's other receivers that they've had under Malzahn. And like I mentioned, it's the drops. It's the fact that Nick's forced so much to him, and he wasn't able to come down with it. He was just not the most efficient guy. And then you look at a guy but like Stowe. is that Stowe, his fault? I think part of it is, because you look at him in 2020 – he was not motivated. He was not a he was not a passionate receiver fifty percent of the time, and I'm I, that's that's not me being dr- dramatic. It's just like no, every that was other, the knock on him on a lot of NFL draft reports. Every other play, Auburn would throw a tunnel screen. Auburn would throw that 50-50 ball, and he just wouldn't go and get it. He wouldn't he wouldn't put his arm out. He just would not try and make the play, and he was not consistently putting out as much effort as some of uh, Auburn's other receivers that I've seen in the past. He just was not out there trying. Um, I think that's actually kind of impressive considering how athletic he is that he didn't necessarily have to try half the time. But I don't think he was as efficient as Auburn receivers in the past. And I think Eli Stove was definitely talented. I think he was efficient. Would I say that he was a better receiver than Seth Williams? No, because Seth Williams has the potential to be great. He just actually has to try. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that he, was, he would be better. Um, but I, I do think Eli Stove was talented. I don't put hardly I don't put a ton of culpability on Seth Williams I understand the argument that a lot of people had especially in his draft report about and what you just pointed out about sometimes effort on individual plays like his motor wasn't always there like I get that that was on a lot of a lot of draft reports I understand that one but I think the scheme hurt him a lot That's I really him. do yeah. if the, if he knew if he had more of a diverse route tree which is not his fault he has to run what routes are called for him on the play if he had been given more of an opportunity to run different routes and to be utilized in other ways other than the way that the Gus Malzahn tenure utilized him I mean he would have been more he would have been a more effective receiver I mean it was it was definitely forced his way a lot and so whenever which, I, that's hard to succeed that way that's yeah. why I think Traylon Burks is going to have a hard time succeeding this year yeah. so whenever that's what I'm saying about like evaluating him compared to, to some other receivers Malzahn has had is like I mean they're running they're running stuff under Malzahn's system, and those receivers had more success, if if the same, if not more. So it's like in terms of like grading him for the Malzahn tenure, I didn't have him in my, in my top three or four because there are other guys that I thought were better. I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, and this receiver room, and I'm I'm looking at a chart receiving by direction for Seth Williams right now on PFF, just like where they were targeting him heavily, and. There were a lot of like a lot of instances like you look in the intermediate level. I mean, uh, about ten plus yards down the field, in between ten and twenty yards down the field, he's in, in between the numbers. He's like four for eleven, so targeted eleven times, four catches, didn't drop any there. And then you look over on the right side of the field, targeted four, uh, targeted ten times, only caught the ball four times, no drops. Left side of the field, in this ten to twenty yard range, targeted twelve times, only three catches, very low receiving percentage as I pointed out like less than half of the passes that were thrown his way he like 47 he, he brought yeah. in which is I don't I still don't think that that was his fault uh at least not all of it was his fault yeah not I, all of it I think a lot of that had to do with the scheme but let's take a quick break here when we come back we're going to give you our reactions from the weekend and wrap up the Monday edition of on the line Wrapping up the Monday edition of On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564-1840. This show has flown by. It really has. It does not feel like 
the end of the day for us two here in the studio. But let's go to our reactions of the weekend. So what happened this past weekend, Lance? Do you got any reactions from this past weekend? Um, in terms of recruiting, uh, or just anything? Not, not, not a whole, not a whole lot, honestly. Um, I just, I expected the Suns to take Game Two on Friday. Um, I was kind, I was, I was surprised that they lost. It, it in that second half against Giannis, like it felt like they just complete, they just completely fell apart. Um, I was surprised that they fell apart as badly as they did. Um, and then I, I was not watching a whole lot of soccer, but f in the chat for Man. England. Ooh, that is sad. Yeah, I have a reaction to that. Brutal, but also as expected. Unfortunately, it kind of from the get go. I all every, once it got to the knockout round for England, I was like, when's it coming to an end? Like this, this is the, I, I don't feel like this thing's coming to home. I, I feel like this mm-hmm. is more of like when is this coming to an end? <laughs> like that was my vibe the whole way through. I was like, okay, so they're they're gonna lose to Denmark. No, okay, they're in the final now. Well, it's coming to it's coming to Italy. So. I, I, even when the even when England went up at penalties, I, I don't know. Did you watch penalty kicks? I, I I didn't. I saw the last penalty kick, but England had a one like had a one goal lead in penalty kicks, had a one shot lead in penalty kicks, and then blew it missed. by missing their next three. Nice, nice. not missing, but having them all saved. Like that's brutal. You know who that reminds but me I knew of? It. I even when they got up, I said I verbally said this. I said they're gonna lose. It's over. Missing three kicks, huh? But on the flip side, it's hopeful for the Italian nation that is got to be pumped after they missed the World Cup last time. Yep. I mean, you talk about the teams that did not qualify for the last World Cup. Netherlands, Italy, United States. You were missing some mainstays in the World Cup last go-round, and Italy comes back and wins the Euros. So hopeful for, for Italy. you got to be happy for that, right? But England, they are definitely hurting. Ronald Acuna, definitely some bad, um, yeah. some bad stuff from this past weekend. Very disappointed. You hope for a speedy recovery for Ronald Acuna. Braves now, though, if you're looking at this from from a season perspective for the, for the Braves, they're in trouble. Yep. Uh, I, I, what I would say about the the penalty kicks, you know, last time I saw uh, <laughs> nothing I, on Acuna. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> like I've I've already I've already gone. I've I've paid my dues to Acuna. I'm just like I do not care. I do not care about Atlanta. I do not care about Chicago. That is it. Baseball season is over. Give me to football. It's over. Nothing exciting. Um, I will say this about the kicking. The last time I saw a uh, kicker miss three three kicks in a really important game, it was a, it was a certain 2013 Iron Bowl, and we, <laughs> we we all saw how that went. It just reminded me that of that. But yeah, I'm really sad for Acuna. Um, gonna be honest, kind of surprised that Freddie Freeman was able to make the All Star game. He he has picked it up recently, um, but he has not played. It's not been Freddie. Uh, yeah, it's not been normal Freddie, and it's weird because it's a contract year. So they're, they're, they'll be working through that and everything. But we got a caller here squeezing in here at the end of the show. 334-321-1390. Five minutes left here and on the line. And Shane joins us. Shane, how's it going? Hey, guys. How y'all doing? We're doing really well. What's on your mind? Uh, I was just going to talk about basketball, if, if that's cool. Go for it. So I, was, I watched most of the game. You know, it, it was a little boring at the end. Um but once you you realize that that, that it was out of, out of hand, you know that's there's nothing much that that you haven't seen already. But um, so Giannis got to the line more because that dude was really aggressive. Like he was not about to lose that game. I, I don't know what the series is going to hold, but but I'm pretty sure he was not. He and he had the mindset was he was not about to lose the game. So but he got fouled a lot. But he but but. To be honest, like it was, it was legit because he was aggressive at going to the, to the line, uh, going to the to the, the basket. 
getting rebounds. And but you know, he played his heart out that game. Whether that translates to the next one, if they if they can keep up that energy, I don't know. But the the Suns just didn't go come at it like like they could have closed it out basically if they had won that game. It, it was more of a I don't know that they, they were recouping and then they were gonna you know. If they lose this one, fine, and they're going to, you know, save their energy for the next two or something like that. It just seemed like that they were in it, you know, as much as um, the other team. That's why it looked like, the, you know, Milwaukee got to the line a lot more than the Suns did, in my opinion. And that's something that uh, Jacob said is that Giannis would will uh, the Bucks to at least win one game. And then to, to your point about the Suns kind of just recouping and getting ready for the next game, they sat Booker for a lot in the second half. Like he had only oh, played yeah. twenty minutes or twenty nine minutes in the, up until like midway through the fourth quarter, and then they put him back in. So. Game three was the least important game for the Suns because if yeah. they win Game four, it erases everything that happened in Game three, and they're still up three one, right? And at that point, we've only seen that happen. We've only seen someone blow a three one lead once, right? So like or, or twice in the same playoffs. So you know, I I don't yeah. know if. Uh, uh, game three was least important. Yeah, I, I think if they yeah. win game four, that's where things get bad for the Suns if they were to lose because now you're now in your now you're in a fist fight. You're tied up two two, and now it's anybody's series again. But if they're to win, it, it does almost seal the deal. I think I think that the Bucks will win at least one more. I, I don't know if that's, if that's next game or if they win. Uh, you know, the following one, following one in in the Suns. I think it will be come to six game. Um, just, just thinking how the Suns have played, I don't see them losing the series. But I, I, I really believe that they'll get one more. Um, I would love it for to go to, to go to seven, and we have that much more, you know, basketball for the season. So I would love a seven game series, and and maybe a little bit more competitiveness each game instead of like you know they get they get blown out twice, this team gets blown out again. You know, it's like the freaking College World Series. It was no not competitive, so. Maybe the rest of the series, it'll be it'll be back and forth the whole game, and even into the fourth quarter, you don't know who's going to win. It makes it a little bit more exciting, in my, in my opinion. I agree, right, guys. I'll let you guys get out of here. Appreciate it, Shane. Later. Hope you have a good Monday. That was Shane on the line with us. I want to say this: I think Shane's going to get what he wants in Game Four because both teams. This is much. I think that this is very much so. I wouldn't say it's not must win for the Suns. It's must win for the Bucks if they want to win this series. They mm-hmm. lose this game chances of winning this series that they're not going to win three straight to, yeah. to take back the series that not with Giannis still probably not a hundred percent they're just not built to do that the Suns are so much better of an of an offensive team and are built to close that thing out with a 3-1 lead but if the Suns were to lose and this thing goes 2-2 now we got ourselves a series we, we really do and I think that the Suns are going to come and bring it all on this one and I think that the Bucks are going to bring it all as well because they know how important it is. Both of these teams know how important game four is. Who do you who's taking game four in your mind though? I'm going Suns. Suns in five. I'm I take the Suns to win the next two. Me and the boys catching a fat dub, bandwagoning the Suns all the way to the title. Let's go. I'm excited, man. I've not been more excited for a bandwagon in my entire life. I'm sticking to what I said on Friday. I, I said that the Bucks will win in game three, but will lose in game four. I, I didn't expect them to get swept. The Suns were bound to get cold at one point, but that they, they're just going to keep shooting, and they're going to find their way out of it. Yeah, Booker will not shoot as poorly as he did last night for the rest of the series. And really, this has been a series of like 
one quarter in every game. Like one team, and up to this point, it's been really the Suns blowing out the Bucks in in pretty much every quarter or one quarter in each of the games. Yeah. But outside of one quarter in each of the games, it's been relatively close. But it's been one run enough for both of these teams to blow out the other team, and just neither team's really been able to close the gap. Been very interesting. Game four is on Wednesday, 8 p.m. ABC. That's it for the Monday edition of On the Line. We'll be back with you tomorrow, same time, same place. You know where to find us.